You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Natalie Hodges. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The performance was going well, almost unbelievably well, in fact. I'd practiced counting down each time the theme returned as a way of getting through the piece, of keeping track and also keeping up morale. Only three more repetitions of the theme till the end, now two, now one. Yet something strange started to happen as I counted those returns down. I felt, and this is the only way I know how to describe it, that I was inside the music's time, in the heart of a tolling grandfather clock whose gears turned at an allegretto grazioso rate of six eighth notes to a bar. The bell tolled on the hour of the theme, but the time in between was itself whirring and unfolding, development by development, variation by variation. Taking off the theme's returns, I felt at the same time how each section engendered the next, how they progressed into and referred back to and complicated one another, and how, in always circling back to the theme, they shaped a globe of time, a sphere of sound. Each variation's passage changed the feeling of the theme that followed it, inflecting it with the memory of all that came before so that even as each theme relocated itself in the present, it echoed with the ghostly chimes of the past. Then I remembered that I was supposed to mess up. Time, which had been bubbling steadily along, froze. My hands seized up. Everything seemed to happen in slow motion, yet too fast for me to catch up. My left hand wouldn't shift smoothly up the fingerboard, which was unfortunate because the chromatic and arpeggiated runs accelerate from the original tempo and require by the final measure, about three shifts per bar. My right hand, meanwhile, decided it was no longer capable of holding the bow, causing my bow hold to collapse and my fingers to lock, white knuckled, just to keep from dropping the bow entirely. Then it happened. Just before the last chord, I dropped the bow. I was forced to play the chord by plucking the strings in what was perhaps the world's unluckiest and most spontaneous demonstration of pizzicato. It's almost comical now, but whenever I think back and try to analyze what happened, I am still stricken by the memory, sick and visceral, of how it felt when time stopped. Why is it that one sense of time, so supple inside the music itself, seizes up and cracks beneath an audience's expectant gaze, or as soon as one becomes aware of that gaze, that expectation? Why does getting into the flow of the music require yielding yourself to its time? feeling its flow through and around you, when all the while time is also the enemy, the thing you're running out of as you play along, trying to make it to the end and yet trying to make something of the moment while the music lasts. If you can't get into that flow, if your nerves get the best of you and you're dragged onto the shore of self-consciousness, well, chances are you'll mess up that tricky run or play the last chord as an anticlimactic pizzicato and hurry off the stage with your head bowed. In performances like my botched Paganini, even when you've been dreading all the while that something will go awry, you're never prepared for it. The flow is staunched, the fabric rent. You feel punched in the gut, knocked out of the music's time and back into your own. And then afterward, you can feel the seconds and minutes passing. You trudge through, it's all linear. You just want it to be over. You just want to make it to the end.
Yeah, that you really capture so um, beautifully the dread, the, I don't know, the, it's thrilling, but it's also kind of the nightmare. <laughs> and yes. It's exactly. very, it's very almost like gun to the head kind of moments. Where... Yes, and you're, you're the one holding the gun and you can't put it down. And it's the nightmarish thrill. Yes, absolutely. And I like, it's so interesting because we, it, you know, we don't always unpack those phrases, you know, losing time. And then uh, as I also think about uh, performers or particularly of classical music, almost yes. this losing one, you know, we can say one loses oneself, one loses oneself in the music. There's another side of that too, is that there, one is surrendering or submitting one, losing oneself to become an yes. instrument of another artist's voice. And so I wondered, I know you studied Suzuki method and, and I'm very interested in the way in which we teach the arts and, and the way in which we teach music. And, and some people have said to me that, gosh, they wished when they were learning music. I mean, these are like notable uh, composers. And so, when they were learning music, there wasn't an emphasis on music composition. Like they had to find their way to it. Yes. So the, the joy early on, like almost like people said they almost abandoned music because they hadn't been given this other path where maybe they could find the joy in the music. Yes, absolutely. So tell me, you know, what your feelings are about that. And, you know, how do you find the joy within also this very rigid structure of losing oneself? Yes. Well, so I, I did, I started out um, in the Suzuki method and, and basically I finished it. I went pretty much all the way up through the end of the books. And being in the Suzuki method was such a gift, actually. The, the philosophy um, is to nurture children by love. And the founder of the method, Junichi Suzuki, he, he thought that children should learn or be taught to play music um, the same way that they acquire speech from their parents, that it should be this very uh, involved process of mimicking. So the parent basically learns alongside um, their child. And the point of it um, is not to produce prodigies or, you know, you know, people who will, you know, practice 12 hours a day, but it's to, um, I think, as you said, for children to have the experience of knowing how to work hard at something, experiencing the joy of being able to lose themselves in that, in that music. So for, for me, the sense of it as a really rigid structure, um, it, it didn't start out that way. And actually when I was very little, I loved performing and I never got nervous. It was only when I decided that I really wanted to enter classical music and, you know, realized what a very, there's a very sort of set pattern that your life is supposed to follow. If you want to be a professional musician, you have to, you know, practice for this many hours a day. You have to be at this conservatory by this time in your life, auditioning with certain pieces. And that was when it, be, that was when I felt sort of the, the, the necessity of all this different structure kind of clamped down on the time that I had. And that was quite painful and it made it um, impossible for me to have that feeling of losing myself in, in, a, in a way where you can just kind of abandon who you are to the music because I was always so self-conscious about whether I was doing it right. So yeah, so that came later for me, maybe around my, my adolescence. And in your book, you talk about how your past comes back as you go through different phases and experiences in your life, um, like a chorus and a song. And how by going through the past, we can be able to understand it. Where do you think the line is between not being able to let go of your past and moving on? Oh, um, I struggle to figure that out every day. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there, 
there is a line, of course. Um, I think, at least for me, the only way that I ever find it is by um, stepping over it constantly. You know, whenever I'm, you know, if I'm if I are struggling, I talk with my sister, and what she always says to me is, "The only way out is through." And I really do believe that you can feel trapped in the past. Like the past is its own kind of wormhole that comes back again and again. And I I don't know. At least for me, I want to get out of the mindset of ever expecting it not to um, not to return all of a sudden, not to just turn the corner and there it is for you again. Um, because I think when 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 grief um, is that powerful or there's been something that's been you know, that much a part of your life. Like no matter what, I'll always go to a concert and feel a little bit sad because that represents the kind of a, a path that I was going to take and then, and then didn't. So I think getting rid of the expectation that um, the past won't haunt you, um, that, I, that it'll cease to haunt you has been important for me. But the other idea that was quite compelling to me that I, I talk about in the book that actually comes from, from quantum physics is that the, the universe itself really has no fixed past or history. Um, and that's quite terrifying to think about, right? But it's that in attempting to record it, like if you attempt to record, record the movement of particles, they actually change what they chose to do in the past. And that's a phenomenon that's been documented in what's called the famous double slit experiment, um, where every time the physicists try to record the particles behavior, it's as though the particles knew that the physicists were going to do that. And then they, they, they altered their um, paths. And so I think for me in going back and writing about the past as I have, there was this fear that, oh, am I, am I changing it? Am I in attempting to understand it? Am I kind of bending it falsely to this curve where I need to be able to you know, reconcile the fact that I don't play anymore and justify it? But at the same time, in giving yourself some kind of narrative, I think, to hold on to and staying as true to the facts as you can, there is a letting go in that and a freedom. And that's that was my hope for myself with the book. And it's not, of course, the my past with music is never done, but I have this way of understanding it for myself and then moving forward. Yes, exactly. I think that it, it really, this is really a meditation on time and, and so many things. It can be taken as a metaphor, I think, for those who aren't uh, in the arts. It's just, it just really helps us put so many things into context. And one thing I also enjoyed is as you wrote about tango and also your relationship to playing tango, where I guess you were sort of freed up in this because it's a sort of a breaking of the rules music and dancing. <laughs> Absolutely. And I was, I really like um, how, and if you could talk about how the tango dancers, you know, communicate, you know, not through words, but just through this knowing or one mindness. Um, yes. And in a way, uh, musicians do that too, or you see the birds, the murmuration of birds. How, how is this possible? I, you know, I don't, it's, it's, it's miraculous. Um, and I think to really, uh, that was one of the, uh, best parts of writing the book for me was watching tango dancers and just seeing what a miracle it was that they can improvise in sync. Um, and there, you mentioned the murmuration of, of birds. There is some speculation that, um, quantum entanglement between, uh, like within like really, really deep, like at the quantum level within, um, certain neurons in the brain may be sort of what consciousness emerges out of um, within a single brain, but then that would also allow us to um, connect with connect with other people. That's, I mean, that's very, there's very, very basic research on it. It's more of a hypothesis that quantum entanglement 
is, is somehow at the root of consciousness. But um, what I would say with, with tango music, couple things. Yes, that whenever I, I used to play a lot of it with my quartet in high school. And those, I, I noticed always that those would be the performances when I never, I didn't feel afraid. Um, I felt much more, much freer, more alive, um, more willing to take risks. And I felt like all of us would be more willing to take risks, but we would somehow be able to take them together. Um, and a lot of that, I think it came from how how easy it is to connect emotionally with that music, but also from how much whenever we would perform tango, the audience, wherever we were, um, would respond so powerfully to it. And it's just fun. Um, so I, that's what drew me to tango always. And I, I knew I wanted to write about it um, because I had had that feeling of freedom while playing it, but I knew to, to, to write credibly about it. At one point I was gonna have to learn how to dance. So I ended up taking these tango classes under the guise of reporting on tango um, for the book. And the, the, again, the, the best metaphor that I could um, find for it, watching my classmates and our instructors who were able to, to move so wordlessly in sync without planning um, was uh, this idea of quantum entanglement. Um, so if we have you know, particle A over here and particle B and their state is entangled. That's just something they share. If particle one, um, if we cause it to um, change the direction of its, uh, change its polarity, which is the direction in which its electrical field is vibrating um, and it's entangled with particle B, even if particle B is uh, nowhere near particle A and, and no physicist is doing anything to particle B, it will also flip its polarity at the same moment in the same direction as though it knew beforehand what was going to happen um, with particle A. Um, and that's in physics, it's actually, that's called that, this, it's a phenomenon of coincidence, these two things happening together in time. And that's what it was like to watch, that's what it is like to watch people who are gifted tango dancers, it's as though they know beforehand um, what each other, what each, what their partner is going to do. And the beautiful way that my tango instructor, instructor would talk about it was he said that the, the abrazo or the embrace in which tango dancers hold each other is that that is what sort of the fire of that connection is what produces steps. It produces improvisation and allows for that ability to anticipate um, one another. He says in, in, in its own way, it's very much like jazz. And I think that's so true because when you are really, even if you think in the context of a relationship, any kind of relationship, if you're quite close to that person, the more you, um, and the more connected you feel to them, the more you'll be able to anticipate um, their needs, what will make them happy, what will, you know, take them off. It's, it's this beautiful ability to kind of know, almost in a way, know the future with that other person if you have this, this shared closeness. Yes, it, it is beautiful. And, and so what for you is the importance of the arts? Well, I think what I would say is when, for me, when I, um, you know, pick a piece of music to listen to, or I open a book, um, I, I do it because I, uh, I want to know that I'm not alone in my experience of something. And the, the most, um, the times when I have actually just felt most alive interacting with a, a piece of literature or art is because I am, I, I mean, I think it's a very universal experience. You're like, I didn't know somebody else felt this too. And they, the way they've put it, 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 um, it's almost like you, you, you really feel it in your chest because 
it's there's such a, a closeness and a, there's such a recognition. Um, and I I think being able to to share that or to to know um, that other people have felt the same as you is the importance of the arts because in having that experience, how can you not become a more empathetic person? How can you not want more to reach out to others? Um, I, um, I, there's, there's a line in a, um, you do know Annie Erno, the novelist in her, her book, Simple Passion, um, at the very end where she says that this, the experience of the love affair she has, um, it, it brought her closer to the world. And I, I feel that I, I just feel that when I listen to a piece of music I love or read a book I love that I'm I'm closer to the world now than I was when I began. And I'm a better person because of it. I think more critically. Um, I'm less inclined to be extreme or black and white in my thinking. So I think that's the that's what the arts can do for us at their best. Yeah. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.